Welcome back, or welcome to the Defining Endurance Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Simmons, head running coach at Lifelong Endurance and Peak Performance Running. My guest today, Chris Mingle. Chris owns Elite Runner Management. He is one of a handful of the U.S.'s certified sports agents. And we dive into what does it really mean to be a certified sports agent? What are you looking for when you're hiring a sports agent? What does it actually look like after college for a lot of athletes that want to continue running at the elite and high level? This was a really fun conversation, and Chris was an amazing person to have on. He's someone that I could sit down and have a glass or two of wine with and just have a great conversation. Uh, It was really fun to talk about what's happening in the world right now with contracts, what are shoe sponsorships looking like, and what is the forefront of elite runner management actually looking like? How do athletes you know, get viewed on social media, and does that become something that they leverage? And I think one of the big things for all of us to understand is that social media is education, but it's also entertainment. And that was one of the biggest points of our conversation. So as you start to build out your social media, if you're a professional athlete, or if you're just somebody that's trying to get more ambassadorships, remember that what you're selling is you. And the most important thing here is that on the inside of it all, if you're trying to make it to a really high level, you can't just be a really good runner. You can get away with a lot of that, but now if you want to make good money doing it, you also have to be an entertainer. This conversation with Chris was really, really fun for me, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome to Defining Endurance, a podcast focused on providing actionable insights for endurance athletes. Whether you're an athlete just getting started in endurance sports or a veteran looking to gain an edge, the Defining Endurance podcast is here to ask curious questions with athletes and fitness professionals, and most importantly, dive deep on current training topics so you can become the best version of yourself. Let us wait no longer. Let's dive into this week's episode. All right, guys, welcome back to the Defining Endurance podcast. I'm your host, Coach Andrew Simmons, and today I have an interesting guest. No, not an athlete, uh, but he definitely deals with athletes on a daily basis. Uh, My guest today is Chris Mangle. Uh, Chris uh, oversees a number of different parts of the athlete's perspective, but namely represents them when it comes to being a sports agent. So Chris, thank you for coming on today. Andrew, thank you for having me. to give you guys a, at least a little bit of background, we talked before we got on and, um, you know, we, we kind of joked, he saw my phone number in the line of my email and he's like, oh, you must be from the West Side. And uh, we got to connect at least a little bit about West Side versus East Side in Michigan. And I think for those that are listening, um, Michigan doesn't get the respect it deserves, I think, uh, as a running state. Um, there's uh, quite a bit of running history there, uh, whether you're talking about Dathan Ritzenhine or one of the guys we connected on earlier was uh, Patrick Rizzo. So, uh, Chris, I, I'd love to uh, you know just give give you a little background. You gave me such a great little story to start. You uh, when you started kind of representing athletes, uh, you you didn't know how many lanes were on a track, did you? I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I played baseball in uh, in high school and in college at a D one university, and I had no inkling what track and field was all about. None. Absolutely not. Yeah. So how then did you go from, you know, being, being a lawyer 
and then kind of getting connected into the to the world of track and field and representing athletes? Well, uh, it started when I decided to get off the couch and do something active because my <laughs> my body was going to waste, and uh, and I thought the cheapest and easiest way to do was to go out for a run. So I started running a little bit, and there happened to be a Hanson's running store about a mile and a half from my house, and I went to the running store. I went to Hanson's and I got myself a pair of shoes, and I met some of the guys who worked at the store, including. Guys like Patrick Rizzo, who's now one of my athletes, uh, Luke Humphrey, uh, Brian Sell. Um, back in the good old days when Hanson's was just starting to affiliate with with its sponsor now, Brooks. And um, anyway, uh, I got to know Patrick a little bit. And um, Patrick, if you know Patrick, a lot of people do. He's, he's a rascal. And uh, I gave one of my legal business cards and I said, kid, someday you're going to need a lawyer. And when you do, call me. And Patrick was on a training run two months before the Boston Marathon that he was supposed to do with some of his teammates from Hanson's Brooks. And he was hit by a Jeep Laredo and injured pretty severely. He ended up in the hospital in the ICU, and he had a concussion and other injuries. His parents were called in, and uh, about a week or two later, I got a call in my law office, and it was, it was Rizzo. And Patrick said to me, you're right, Mengel, I need a lawyer. And uh, my firm ended up representing Patrick in the litigation involving the lawsuit uh, and the accident. And he had medical bills of about $55,000, and we got his bills paid and, and whatnot. And uh, he knew that I was a runner. I was a jogger, a plotter. And Patrick and uh, Mike Morgan, who I knew, and Luke Humphrey, who I also represented, said to me, you know, you really should sit in become an agent and sit for the exam with USA Track and Field. And I had no idea what that meant. I said, what is it all about? And they said, well, you have to sit for an exam. And I said, I don't know anything about track and field. And they said, well, you're a good negotiator. You deal with contracts. You deal with litigation. You'd be a good spokesman for us. And we'd really like you to sit and take the exam. So on my own dime, I went down to the USATF, uh, USA Track and Field annual meeting in Daytona Beach. I booked like crazy for the two-day exam, um, and I ended up, lo and behold, passing it. And and the long story short, that's how I became a track and field professional sports agent. So I'm I'm really curious because the bar has always kind of held that it is you know, no no jokes aside here the bar as you know a very hard exam. It's not an easy one to pass. How how did this 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 you know compare to to passing the bar? Is this is this actually a pretty challenging uh, pretty challenging thing to be to become an athlete agent? I thought it was more difficult for me than taking the bar exam to become a lawyer. Wow, um, it's it's a two day exam. It was in an area that that really I don't know or I didn't know very much about and. The first day is uh, the USATF, USA track and field part of the exam. And the second day is the world athletics part of the exam. And, and um, it's a multiple choice test and it sounds easy, but you have to score 80% on the USATF part of the exam and a 75% on the world athletics part of the exam to pass and become certified. And it covers everything from uh, 
the athlete agent relationship to contracts, to competition rules, to drug testing, to sanctions, to competition rules. And it's really extensive. And I, I studied hard because I wasn't going to go down to Daytona Beach on my own dime for no good reason and not at least try to pass the exam. And I think it's one of the reasons that there are only, Andrew, I think there are only 58 certified and sanctioned track and field athletes in the United States. Um, there are very few of us, really. And it's difficult. It's not easy. And the exam is only given uh, every two years. So uh, I, I remember when I decided to do this, that I had to wait like a year and a half before the exam was given again. So it, it was a commitment. It was, uh, it was hard. And yeah, I was fortunate to be able to, to pass it. So. Yeah, I uh I'm a USA track and field level 2 endurance coach and right. it requires, you know, that that level 1 is kind of a um you know, I I we've always kind of joked that it requires a pulse and a weekend to pass. But level 2, you know, there's 6 months of, you know, studying and testing before you even get to Indianapolis. Um, to then, you know, you're sitting through lecture for a week and you have to test out of your physiology and all of the different pieces again. So you're, you're retested again. And so I was actually very surprised with how difficult it was. And I think that's part of what secures and makes, you know, an at, whether you're representing athletes or coaching athletes, um, it's really important that I think this is where your national governing bodies and certifications are super important because it truly means that not just anybody can show up and, represent athletes you you end up having to say hey the bar there is a bar there uh that has to be met um and so you know to be clear you you don't coach any of these athletes you represent them in in the field of law i represent them i negotiate their contracts their sponsorships i organize their their uh what races they're going to run i work with their coaches to determine what goal races there will be and what they need to do to get there and what incremental races they'll do before their goal race. Um, yeah. I, and I do everything from sometimes arranging their logistics for travel to different meets to carrying their bag at the time that they perform. Um, I'm, I'm there at meets if there is some type of, uh, if something happened at the at the event you know, where they were tripped up and they wanted to file some type of appeal, um, I, I'm there for that as well. Um, yeah, we do a little bit of everything. It's it's, wow. it's an interesting job. The interesting one of the the interesting factors about being an agent is this: there there are a lot of people who think, well, I can do it myself, or you know, why should I have an agent? Because an agent's fee basically is based on what you can do for an athlete, what the athlete can do for you. And the fee is based, usually it's set by track and field. Uh, the standard is with World Athletics and USATF is 15%. So anything that an athlete makes or anything that they can get as far as sponsorships or appearance fees or uh, prize purses, my my cut will be 15%. Well, as a, as a certified and sanctioned agent, I have to, every year, each agent has to recertify or get the authority from the governing federation, USA Track and Field, 
to be recertified. So I have to take a continuing legal ed- continuing education course every year, which I'll be taking at the uh, the Olympic trials in Eugene in a few weeks. I have to pay a a fee, uh, which is eight hundred dollars per mm. per year to cover. Um, not only the cost of the seminar that I have to attend every year is continuing education, but I also, we are bonded, we are licensed, we are insured, we have to answer to our governing body, and every year we have to reapply for our certification. So, um, yeah, there, there's certain regulations that they look after uh, that USATF makes sure that we're doing our job for the athletes. And it's all to protect the athletes because that's what it's really all about. Um, It's to make sure that we're not, yeah, ripping people off um, like some some agents, so-called agents do who are not certified or sanctioned. They have no standards by which to represent athletes. And there are big races, the races that my athletes perform and usually longer distance races like Boston Marathon, Chicago Marathon, et cetera, London, where the race directors and elite athlete coordinators of those races will not deal with you unless you're as an agent, unless you are a certified sponsored, sanctioned, authorized agent with either USA track and field or world athletics. Yeah. So, wow. So it's, it's, it's definitely not just a, you know, a little couple of initials that you put after your name, Uh, (laughs) you know, not at all, not, not at all. Yeah. And once again, it's for the protection of the athletes and to make sure that the athletes are not taken advantage of by agents. No, that's 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 hugely important because I think, uh, you know, we've all we've all seen at some point, you know, either, uh, you know, misrepresentation or we've seen athletes that, you know, they may shift brands, you know, they may move from, you know, one shoe company to another shoe company. And, you know, like it, it is, it's a negotiation. It's such an important thing. And you want to make sure that, you know, number one, if, if I'm the athlete, then you're representing me. I want, I want to make sure that, you know, my interests are top of mind, that that's most important. Exactly. Um, so, you know, when we were scheduling this, you'd kind of mentioned, Hey, I can, you know, kind of schedule any time with you as long as it's not during the trials. And so we do have the Olympic trials coming up, Um, you know, and you said that you'll be on site. You mentioned, you know, you kind of do everything from, you know, holding their bags to, you know, representing if they need to file an appeal. Um, You know, what, when would it, would an athlete, you know, really use their agent on site? Like, you know, if, if it's contested, like a few years ago, um, I think it was, uh, I'll probably get this wrong. I think it was Mo Farah stepped on the white line. Right. Um, and you know, he, it was, there was an appeal there of whether or not that, you know, um, that that was going to count, you know, is that, is that where you step in when it's something just like that, or is it much more niche than that? Well, it's, a, it's, it's a combination of both, I guess. You have a certain period of time under the the regulations and competition rules in which to file an appeal if you want to, and it's got to be done usually within 30 minutes of the posting of the results, the official posting of the results. And um, yeah, and you have to state in writing, it has to be done in writing. And there's usually a fee that goes along with that. You usually have to pay about $100 to contest something. And then it goes to the the official head referee as to whether or not it, it should be your request for the appeal should be upheld or not. 
and then it goes to a, a higher board of review. And it, yeah, it, it's, wow. it's an incremental procedural thing. And since, to be honest with you, since I represent mostly road runners, you don't run into the same types of issues that you do on the track and in track meets. Um, because roads are, there's, there's not that many opportunities to go off the road, right? I mean, right. because those, that's how big the road is. I mean, it's, I, I had it, I had a, um, one, one situation when I was in Los Angeles, I had one of my athletes running the Los Angeles marathon and, and one athlete went off the course and stepped off onto the sidewalk and in road running, it's only the roadway, which is the official course for a race. And I, I toyed with the idea of filing an appeal in that race specifically, but the runner did not gain an advantage by going up on the sidewalk for all of about two seconds. And even if I was successful in my appeal, it would not have substantially improved my athlete's position because the guy who did it ended up behind my athlete. So all those types of things go into whether or not you're going to challenge something on the roads or not, or, or at a meet. It's, yeah. it, it doesn't happen very often, to be honest with you. No, but, but when it does, you, you, it's, it's better to be in person because, uh, you know, get, getting a, a handwritten uh, appeal within 30 minutes is probably not an easy thing. Easier now, but. Um. Yeah. It, and, and athletes really don't know the process. They don't really know how to do it. So it's good to have both your coach and an agent with you, especially if it's an important race. If it's not, I, I don't go to all the races that my athletes compete in. I go to most of the important, if not all the important ones, like I, I will be at the trials in a couple of weeks in Eugene. Excited. I actually uh, just got back from a trip and uh, the new Hayward Field, if you haven't set your own eyes on it yet, it is truly a spectacle of running. Uh, it is it is an amazing looking track. I When we pulled up to it, I'm like, that has to be the football stadium. And right. nope, <laughs> it is not the football stadium. It's it is a quite quite a spectacle. I, um, I was there at the old uh, Hayward Field uh, for the trials four years ago, and I'm really looking forward to going back and seeing how they've renovated it and what it looks like now. Yeah, you, it, it it's nothing like like what it was at all. Um, so I wanted to kind of shift gears and and, and move kind of a, away from you know kind of the snares and traps of things that can happen per se, um, to an athlete and actually kind of talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the, the, the I, I call it the, the art of the deal, if you will, is like, I think when most people think of runners and they think, Oh, this runner has made it, it's the shoe endorsement. Um, you know, but you know, talking with a number of friends and a number of athletes, shoe deals maybe aren't that common. Um, they may work with a, a multitude of brands. Um, and, and one of the things that I found really interesting is that um, in working with a couple athletes that were headed to the trials, there are so many things that, um, you know, they can't wear so many logos. They have to be a certain size, um, you know, and things like that. So let's let's talk for just a second here. Um, you know, how do athletes make money if they're not compensated directly from, say, a shoe sponsor? Is it an appearance fee? Is it if they get on the podium, they may get a, a, a bonus? Like, 
when you're putting together a contract for an athlete, are these all things that go into it? Well, it, the short answer is, is yes. Um, there are not a lot of, unless you're, you're uh, Edward Cesaret or, or Galen Rupp, or, there aren't a lot of contracts really to go along, around for track and field professional athletes. So what you do is you, you look at an athlete, or I do anyway, and I look at their value. What is, what is their value? Um, and I, not only as, as great runners, but what can they bring to a sponsor so that the sponsor would be interested in, in investing in them to have a return on investment. But I look at everything, to be honest with you. I look at what race prize purses there are, whether or not this race pays appearance fees, whether or not my client, my athlete would would qualify for an appearance fee, uh, whether or not if I can, if I have a sponsor, I can write into a contract if they're only willing to give gear, uh, whether or not the sponsor will also offer something for a personal best or for making a certain team or for finishing in the top 10. So uh, the negotiations that I have is not only with sponsors, but it's with race directors as well and elite mm. athlete coordinators uh, i have two athletes who will be running the boston marathon and, and it hasn't been announced what the field is but i have two two athletes running boston uh, coming up in october and you talk about things like okay are you going to give us an appearance fee you want them in the field uh, do you are you offering them travel are you offering them lodging are you offering them hospitality you know, what is it that you can offer my athlete? And, and their response is, well, what is your athlete bringing to the race? How can we get a return our, on our investment if we decide to bring your athlete in? How does it improve the value of what we have to offer the public? So I often ask of my athletes and, and, and sponsors often ask of me, you know, what, what is your value? What can you bring to the table? What is it that you can do for a race, a race director, or a sponsor of a given race to mm -hmm. be able to validate your entry and what they'd be willing to offer you to have you compete? I can um, distinctly remember. I'm looking at it uh, on, on my wall right now. I did um, a race. Actually, this was a uh, an inaugural 2012 uh, marathon on the east side of the state in Michigan. And my bib um, is uh, signed by Bill Rogers. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is 2012. So this is a number of years after Bill was, of course, in, in prominence. But, you know, m more than likely that was bringing Bill in was probably something that was negotiated as part of a contract that he still had. Um, and that's what he brought to the race was he was signing bibs at the end. It was a really cool thing. Um, to be able to have my bib and have it up on my wall now and be like, yeah, I met Bill Rogers and, you know, my name's on it. And he says, you know, Andrew, strong day. I finished third. Like I had a good day. Um, so, you know, that was a great moment for me. But I also like think like, oh, you didn't just show up there because you're a nice guy, Bill Rogers. Like you clearly like that was he was it was a big attraction because this was an inaugural race. 
he was at the expo. He was, you know, there to speak the night before at the pasta dinner and then was there at the finish line. And so these are kind of some of those things that when you're working with a race um, or even with an athlete, those are things that you're going to seek out and say, hey, here's an opportunity for you. Is that kind of where where you fit? Exactly. And, and by the way, Bill Rogers is a great guy. He's a fabulous guy. Yeah, I grew up in Massachusetts back in the 70s, and, and it was all about Bill Rogers back in the day. But the bottom line is, you make a good point, Andrew, and that is that sponsors are really trying to sell products, and, and races are trying to sell race entries and registrations. And they want to make sure that the people that they work with will help them do that. And these athletes have value. Um, and, and some of them, like Bill Rogers, who have international reputations and were gods of our sport, still have uh, a prominence. They're, they're still really important to the sport in general. And if you can meet, you know, if, if, it's, if it's baseball, if you could meet someone like I don't know, Mickey Mantle or Willie Mays or something like that. I mean, it's going to grow out the sport and it's good for your, your race. It's good for your company. It, it's, it's because that person brings value and will assist you in growing out your business and improving your business and helping you sell products. So it's always about value. I think sometimes one of the problems I have with athletes, especially athletes who are just coming out of college is, you know, everything's been laid out for them when they're in college. They get, oh, they get transportation, they get housing, you know, they don't have to worry about meals. And, and what do they bring to the, to, the, to the event? They bring their best performance. And that's all they have to do. Um, but it's different when you get to be a pro because it's, it's a business. It's, it's a sport and the sport is the sport of entertainment, basically. And what sponsors are trying to do is, okay, he's a nice guy. He's a good athlete. We like him. His times are pretty good, but what's our return on investment? If we're going to invest something in an athlete, what do we get back from it in return? Because I think too many young athletes, especially look at it as a charity. You know, I'm a nice guy. I'm good at this. I'm a fast half marathon or a 10,000 meter runner. So I deserve to get a sponsorship. Well, it doesn't work that way. You have to be able to give the sponsor something in return for the investment that they're making in you. And I think too many young athletes especially don't understand that it is a business as well as a sport. That's so important. And I think I, I think one of the things I love there that, to key in on is that they are in the you know business of entertainment. And I think... You know, I want to save the discussion for social media for just a little bit because I feel like that has been a, a massive transition in the sport. But let's let's go back to Alberto Salazar and Bill Rogers. You know, for them to make money in the sport, and I'm looking at the 70s, the 80s when things were really starting to build up. How was an athlete, you know, making money? Because, um, you know, I think about it like they might be in a Nike ad. Uh, that might print in a newspaper or a magazine, you know, how, how, you know, even in the, when you first started into this business with the early days of the Hanson's Brooks, before everybody had a phone in their hand, what, what did contracts look like as compared to now before they're selling their, 
245,000 followers or their one point, you know, something followers and saying, I have a huge following. That's my leverage. What were they really selling beforehand? What were, what were they, what were they there for? Were they there to speak at the expo? Were they there to, you know, be the, the headliner at the race? Like where, what was the, what was the big call to be able to kind of solidify that running demands and runners demand money? Well, I think many of them were like branding ambassadors that the companies wanted to affiliate with certain athletes because of who the athletes were, because they had, oh, because they were great, like Salazar, like Rogers, uh, because they liked their personalities, because they were good with with people that they would agree to to show up at events. And um, it was more a value of aligning with a brand as opposed to growing out the business to sell more product. I think that, Mm -hmm. I think that that has changed substantially. So a lot of the athletes that you see these days, I've got gotten away. I, and this is what I've seen. And this is the biggest difference I think I've seen in the last seven or eight years, just since I've been an agent is that um, it's, it's, these non-traditional types of sponsorships, which you get away from the shoe model of just wearing Nikes or New Balance or Saucony or Brooks or whatever. And I'm talking about non-traditional sponsorships. And a couple of them that I've seen very recently, which is really interesting is, um, I don't know if you know the shot putter, Joe Kovacs. I mean, Joe's mm-hmm. world champion, uh, Olympic medalist in the shot put. Um, he just signed a sponsorship deal with Duluth Trading Company. Now, Duluth is in Duluth, Minnesota. They're an apparel company for outdoorsmen and basically outdoor workers and lumberjacks and things like that. But Joe happens to like their clothes, and he went into one of their stores, and he started wearing them, and, and he started touting them on on his social media. And and suddenly he's got a, a contract now in which one of his primary sponsorships is with Duluth Trading Company. Uh, very recently, I, another a really good example is um, Colleen Quigley. You probably saw yep. this in, in the last week or two. I mean, she just signed a sponsorship deal with uh, Lululemon. And Lululemon, you know, they're, they're basically an athlete apparel maker. And Colleen had a, a contract with Nike out of college, mm-hmm. and they wanted to re- Nike wanted to renew the contract with her, and, and they were offering, even though she's an Olympian in the steeplechase, they were offering her, from what she says anyway, less than what they wanted to pay her when she got out of college. And she decided to go out on her own, and she got this deal with uh, Lululemon. But I, I noticed today I was reading the Wall Street Journal in the first quarter profits this year for Lululemon, their profits rose 88% just in in this quarter, which is unbelievable. So not only is Colleen Quigley a great athlete and steeplechaser, she knows her value and she's more or less an influencer. I think she has almost a quarter of a million followers on Instagram. And that is valuable, I think, to a sponsor who's trying to grow out their brand and and she's going to help them sell products just as Kovacs will with um, 
with Duluth Trading Company. And these are really non-traditional sponsorships. So not only are they great athletes, but they're influencers as well because of social media. And I think social media has really changed the name of the game when it comes to sponsorships in the last, well, certainly in the last five to six or seven years. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think um, it, as as much of a double-edged sword, you know, I'm a youth coach. And so there are some times when social media is this just nasty, toxic, awful place where, you know, when we get into the comparison of things, um, you know, that's, that's where it's really not a great, a great place. But when you look at it from this perspective, like this is what grows the sport of track and field. If we want more kids and more people participating in track and field, like truly getting on the track and racing an 800 a mile, two mile, like, you know, these are the people that we need. We need this visibility of people who are the stars. You know, we, I, I can't think, you know, you have a handful of athletes maybe um, that I can think of growing up as a kid in the 90s, you know, that I remember as track and field stars. Like, you know, I think like Allison Felix and I think of a handful of others that I can think of, right? Like the very end there for me, I remember watching, um, you know, just, oh my gosh, I can't, Usain Bolt, right? Like I know that like, if I wanted to sprint, I was going to buy some Pumas. Right. Right. right like right. that's, that's what sold it for me. There's no better shoe to sprint in than a pair of Pumas because Usain Bolt's wearing them. And now what we're seeing is we're starting to see these people with personalities, like you said, right? This is an entertainment business. Now, this is what's growing the sport. This is what's, what's helping, um, you know, sell out stadiums and making track and field something that people want to watch again. Um, and so I, I think that this is where social media is a huge benefit to the sport and is something that that really helps it grow. Because I think what traditionally always happened was you had the shoe deal and then, you know, you were there for three or four or five years. And if you didn't have any major results, that contract might have dried up. And, you know, you, you see athletes switch contracts and eventually kind of fade out into the into the sunset. And so. With that said, do you do more than just the sponsorship athlete side of the deal? Have you ever worked like we're seeing more athletes now write books and really creating other pieces of media there? Um, you know, even some becoming, you know, doing movies and small documentaries. Are these things that you're trying to help your athletes find or is this more led by the athlete? Well, it, it depends on the athlete's personality, to be honest with you. Um, some of them have a hard time doing that, reaching beyond themselves as to, and they feel uncomfortable with it. So I think the athlete has to be true and genuine and real. Otherwise, social media and all that interaction with people, it's, it's really not going to work. But I encourage my athletes certainly to go outside themselves and to realize that it's more than just an individual sport in a result that they're going to have in a given race. What I do is I try to sell my athletes to sponsors or race directors, elite athlete coordinators, that my, my athlete is not only a great athlete, but he or she is willing to do certain things to help you out. And I have recommended to some of these things, you want to use my athlete to come in early to speak with a couple of classes um, at, at a local elementary school or do you want to if you want to use my athlete to go on a fun run with one of the local uh, running groups in town my athlete would be more than happy 
to reach out to do that. And a lot of these, especially young athletes that you you coach and help out with, Andrew, they never get a chance to meet a professional athlete. And and it's it's a great opportunity, not only for these these kids to be able to meet an athlete like that, but for the athlete as well. And they love doing this. Most of my athletes will will always do this when I suggest that they they put themselves out there. And I'd like to see more race directors and, and races take advantage of my athletes. I have a couple of Kenyan athletes that are tremendous athletes. Well, in Karui, has uh, won the Los Angeles Marathon twice. He won the California International Marathon. He's a tremendous athlete. And he comes over here to race. And every time he comes over and races in Los Angeles, um, he meets with students who run LA. And it's a, it's a, it's a group of runners in the local schools in Los Angeles um, from these lower socioeconomic areas in and around LA who train together and ultimately run the Los Angeles Marathon. And he meets with that group every single time he comes over. But it's good not only for Weldon, it's good certainly for the kids. And it helps build the the the, the sponsorship that he has. His sponsors love it when he does that because it gives them um, some more popularity and helps grow out their brand. And that's what it's about these days. It's, it's, you have to be, first of all, nothing takes the place of results. You have to be a great runner. You have to be one of the top runners in your class, in your event, in the country and in the world. But you can use that platform to reach so many other individuals. And I always ask my athletes to try to put themselves out there a little bit, even if they feel uncomfortable with it, because it's so rewarding when you do that, because that's why we do this. That's why we love the sport. And if we want to grow it out into the future, especially with young kids who are the future of our sport, I mean, you, those are the people you need to be working with. Absolutely. I think, you know, like you said, you have to know your value. And we talk actually talk about that quite a bit on our podcast. Um, you have to know your value and also know that that value can have an impact, um, you know, that goes well beyond just saying, hey, I'm going to show up and speak. And because I'm here, you should give me money. It's about knowing that your impact can, you know, go in and, and help other people. And just like I know that Puma is the shoe for sprinting, right? Um, you know, that that had an impact enough on me as a kid that that's always kind of stuck with me in my mind. Right. Um, I, I want to take a second um, and, and let's let's talk, you know, about that. You had you had said you have to be you still have to have results. And so I think one of the biggest mysteries um, for any athlete or, and, and anyone that's on the outside looking in is how do you get sponsored? Like, how is it, do they acquire an agent first? Is it that they got approached by so-and-so company at, you know, they finished a race and they were in the top five. Like, are you actively seeking out athletes to sponsor? Are you, um, you know, how, how does that whole process work of like, I don't even want to call it negotiation, but like almost the discovery process of athlete meeting agent, agent and sponsor. Like how does that whole, what's the traditional, if there is one way of, of that working? I don't know if there is a traditional way. <laughs> I, I, I know. I, yeah. I, I know how I do it 
an, an athlete has to be damn good to be able to get any sponsorship these days, especially with the pandemic and everything that's going on. And let's face mm. it, you know, track and field is not professional baseball or the NBA. So I, I look, I look for athletes and athletes look for me and I, I look for athletes by performance. It, it starts with performance. You have to be excellent. So I will, I will look at NCAA results. I'll look at results of different meets. I'll look at uh, results. I'll look at what athletes are doing, if they're performing well, if they're getting better. Athletes peak at different time. I'll look at their ages. I'll look at their backgrounds. And, and I, will, I will go after an athlete if I think I can help them out and get them sponsorships. Because if I can't help an athlete, then then what am I doing? I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I purposely go out and look for athletes that I think I can help that I think have potential to really make it in this business to make some money so I can make some money for them and they can make money for my agency, but it starts with results. Um, so I will actively make a list of people that I'm interested in, meeting or talking to that I think they have the potential to move their game up to the next level. Um, I will, um, but I, I, and conversely, I'll have some athletes that will reach out to me. I have far more athletes reaching out to me looking for representation. And some of them think that, well, they can get a sponsorship if they just have an agent. And that's not really the way it works. I, because sponsors, if you're good enough, sponsors will come to you. But there, it's it's a really competitive business, so I, I want to make sure that I can do something for an athlete before I engage them with me to work out a, an athlete agent contract. Um, and and sometimes I'll have it's 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 so interesting because sometimes and and I I know a lot of sponsors shoe sponsors and and things like that, but. But there are, they're interesting people. I mean, it's, I'll have, some athletes will come to me and say, listen, I've been approached by this potential sponsor. Uh, we, 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 over the pandemic, we, um, my agency um, signed a bit of a series of contracts with Blizz Athlete Sunglasses. Athlete, they're from Scandinavia and they make these polar sunglasses that usually they're, they're for, across country skiers and downhill skiers and things like that. But they approached one of my athletes and they said, we're interested in, in sponsoring you. And he turned it over to me. So I reached out to Blizz and I was in touch with their rep and, and we were able to work out a deal in which they were supplying gear to my entire stable of athletes and, oh, wow. and to give them, certain incentives if they did well in certain races and they brought in people to buy bliss sunglasses that they could make money themselves individually on these things um so it it, it, it i don't know it, it's i i to be honest with you i have far more athletes reaching out to me looking for representation so you know let's let's talk you know average runners contract versus top tier pro 
Um, you know, so, you know, and I realize that some of these things are probably, you know, we, we have to talk in terms of kind of the Lego structures. You can't say, Hey, it's, it's this much, then this much, then this much, but like, what, what are kind of the building blocks of a basic, like if you're, you know, just coming out of college and, you know, you're, you know, top NCAA runner that's trying to break through on the road scene and, um, you know, maybe you're doing the 25k Riverbank Run, another great Michigan race. Um, and, and let's say you you, you might have won that, and that's kind of where where um, you know sponsors or you know they reached out to you after that. What does that first initial contract look like? Like, are we talking a salary or are we just talking pay for performance? It once again, it depends what you did, what the result was in what given race. <clears throat> Uh, it's generally speaking, you're you're not going to get if you're a, 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 an all American, say, but you've been an all American once or twice. You haven't won the NCAA five thousand meter or ten thousand meter race. Maybe you didn't even podium finish top three. Maybe you were fifteenth or sixteenth, and you want to run professionally. What what? you're going to get most probably and and this is what bothers me about the industry is it's it's really not transparent at all but you might be able to get um a gear contract with some incentives with bonuses and things like that so if you do certain times and do well at certain events that they might want you to run that they will pay you bonuses and stipends for that as opposed to a regular salary um, and, and it's not, mm. it's not a whole lot to be honest with you. Um, but if you have won a U.S. uh, road running circuit race, like the, like Rivergate or, or the 25k championships or something like that, then you will have a better chance to negotiate a stipend. And that's what everyone's looking for. And and they're not. We're not talking about a lot of money mm. here. It might be fifteen thousand a year. It might be twenty thousand dollars a year. Um, but there will also be incentives and bonuses built into the contract that you can negotiate. That okay, if you make a national team and you run in the Pan Am Games for Team USA, or make it to the World Championships, you'll get a bonus of X amount of dollars. Or if you can run a certain time which has changed a lot as well because of super shoes and things like that. So they don't, you know, everyone's running fast these days. So those bonuses are not as prevalent as they used to be, but it's the hardest thing to do is, is to get a contract where they're going to pay you X amount of dollars, no matter how good you do for a certain period of time. So really, yeah, I think that's, you know, I, I, I represented an athlete. And he was one of the top 10 marathoners in the United States. And, and with appearance fees, bonuses, this is a few years ago, but with appearance fees, bonuses, um, uh, prize money, I, I think his total, his total gross for the year was about $30,000, you know? And, and this guy's one of the top 10 athletes in the United States of America and is given in the marathon for that year. Um, it's, it, it's, and it's not transparent. That, that's one thing that was most difficult for me in, in doing this because, you know, it, 
you can go and look to see what LeBron James is being paid by um, the Lakers in his contract. I mean, it's part of a collective bargaining agreement and you can figure out what he, you don't know what Nike's paying him on the side because there are non-disclosure agreements and things like that. But there, but he's an employee of a, of a, of a business and the business is the Los Angeles Lakers and, and usually due to collective bargaining, you can see what his salary is. It's not so in track and field. You know, we're all independent contractors here. And most of these contracts that you have, have these non-disclosure clauses in them. So I can't tell you what Galen Rupp is being paid by Nike to represent Nike. I and and which wow. makes it difficult for me as an agent because it's not transparent. Um, and that was very difficult for me to figure out an athlete's values worth when you don't know what other athletes are actually making. You have an idea, you have a ballpark idea as to what you can get for an athlete, but you don't really know. And, and fortunately, I had some some friends, some agents, some people who are, rep, are reps for different sponsors who will let me in and, and let me know what someone's worth. I remember my, when, when Weldon Karui, my athlete, won the 2016 LA Marathon, it was sponsored by Skechers at the time. And Skechers was in Manhattan Beach, right outside of Los Angeles, and they wanted to make him an offer. And it was the day after the U.S. Olympic trials in 2016. And... Mab Kofleski had made another Olympic team. And I remember being at a post LA marathon race. Um, yeah, a little soiree, a little party for, um, for it was for, uh, at the time it was for Meb, a Skechers athlete. And Skechers was the sponsor of the race. And Skechers was really happy that Weldon had won. And they wanted to make him an offer. And they convinced us to stay in Los Angeles for the next three days on their dime so we could negotiate a contract. And I remember talking to Howie Kaflesgi, Howie is Meb's brother and his agent. And I asked Howie at the time, I said, how much, how much do you think Weldon might be worth? What do you think we can get? And, and he said to me, he said, he said, listen, the only advice, Chris, I can give you is this. He said, your athlete won the Los Angeles Marathon today. And he said, the guy who came in second from Ethiopia, great runner, excellent race today, but he's not here at this party. Make sure you get what you can when you can and don't try to, to, to gouge some, I, it, it's very, it's, it's very difficult. Um, but anyway, mm -hmm. we went to this meeting with Skechers the next day at, in Manhattan Beach. And they said, well, Weldon had a pretty good race. We're kind of happy for him. And I said, yeah. And he happened. And I negotiated a deal for the, that race alone where Weldon would, would wear a Skechers singlet. And that he would get X amount of money if he won, Y if he came in second, or Z if he came in third. And, and he didn't have a sponsor at the time. And they said, well, we're willing to give him X amount of dollars because he won. And I said, that's great. And I said, and, and he was, it's very good for Skechers that we saw him on TV. And I, I had the LA Times with me. And the front page picture on, on the, that day's LA Times was Weldon stretching out his hands, crossing the tape, wearing the Skechers singlet. 
and it was it was tremendous. And I said, "Yeah, I this guy has some value to you, doesn't he?" And Weldon looked at me and he kind of winked at me. And we ended up staying for a couple of days, and we negotiated a great contract with him with him for with Skechers. And 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 the reason was because he brought value to them and they were going to sponsor the LA marathon for the next three years. And they wanted him to come back as the defending champ and race again. And, and he came back in 2018 and won two years later for the second time. And, and by that time, the, the contract that I had negotiated with Skechers <clears throat> had a big bonus in it. So he got more in his bonus with the Skechers contract for winning his second LA marathon than he did in prize money that day. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really cool to, to see how, how that, that can actually really play out and play out well for an athlete. You know, I think watching some of these big marathons, especially you watch the Chicago or Boston um, or even the trials, you know, when you think of someone that might have a light contract or no contract, like I think about, you know, Molly Seidel was still working at Dunkin' Donuts when, you know, she, she did what she did in the trials and now has, you know, a completely different life. It's truly one of those things that running is still one of those sports that you are one good race away from having a life-changing experience. It's an, you can still have that crazy overnight success that you could, you know, be brought in from, you know, an outside country or even be an unknown in the United States, have an amazing race. And after that, it's shoe companies are calling, you know, products are calling and they want you to sponsor, you know, they want you to talk about their product. They want you to share that product. And that's where I think a guy like you has to say, this one's worth it. This one's trash. Let's go this direction. Let's negotiate this. So I'm, have you ever kind of been in that space other than what you have just shared where that kind of like all of a sudden it's, it's happening right yeah, now? I think timing is everything in life. You're absolutely right, right, Andrew. I mean, being in the right place at the right time and having the right performance on the right day is tremendously important. Um, you can have a great performance in some race that no one's ever heard about in a vacuum and it doesn't go anywhere. Yet, if it's a big time race on the right day at the right time, and your athlete has had the the the, the race of his life, it, it's life changing for him. But you have to strike when the when the when the iron's hot. I, I I'll I, I'll have another story um, if you don't mind me telling stories. They're kind of funny. I, I think uh, our audience would love them. Uh, one of my athletes is Zachary Hines. Zach's a a, a great athlete. Um, uh, went to Cornell undergrad, real smart. He's an engineer. Um, Zach went to the Olympic trials in Los Angeles, the Olympic marathon trials in 2016 and, and dropped out. And he, he had been struggling with his training and, and hadn't done all that well. And I, I knew he, we were just hoping he might finish, but the flip side of it was he made it to about mile 16 or 17 and it wasn't happening and he was hurting. And anyway, he, he took a DNF. He did not finish. He dropped out of the race. I said, well, we have bigger fish to fry because I had negotiated a deal that he would run the Boston marathon uh, in April, which was about two months, two months later. Well, Zach goes to Boston. And at the time I had trouble getting him fluids. I got him an entry 
but they wouldn't give him an appearance fee. They wouldn't give him room. They wouldn't give him transportation. They gave us an elite entry, travel to the start, you know, no fluids on the course. I had to negotiate a deal for him uh, with David McGilvery to be able to get him fluids on the course. Well, Zach goes out and has the race of his life. He's top American, top 10 finisher in the Boston Marathon. Tremendous day. He's the first runner in Massachusetts in the last 25 years to finish in the top 10. A huge accomplishment for Zach. A great race. And suddenly, uh, race directors are coming up to me and say, well, we got this race going on this fall. It's called New York. Are you interested? Would Zach be interested in running New York? And then you have people were fawning all over Zach. He didn't know what to make of it in a way. Um, so I said, Zach, we got to strike while the iron's hot. But Zach said, well, you know, I'm going to Europe for, for three months. I got a big vacation. And I said, well, I'd like to see you put off the trip to Europe because you're hot right now. You know, I can get you on radio shows a week, you know, and he says, well, you know, I got to go to Europe and I have people that I have to meet there and stuff like that. And, and we were able to make some hay of what he did in Boston on that one fabulous day. He's had a number of great races, but that was certainly the best race probably that he's had to date in his life. Um, But he wasn't in town enough when he was in Europe, I had trouble getting in touch with him because people wanted to make deals with him or interview him. And it was difficult. And I wish he had stayed because, you know, you're only as good as your, your, your most recent race. And to make a long story short, we did well. And Zach did great. He had a fabulous day. It, it's, it's a tremendous feather in his cap on a wonderful career. Could we have done more in retrospect? Maybe. And maybe I should have worked a little bit harder in doing that. But it came out of the blue. And and you never know, when, like you say, you never know, Andrew, when that race is going to happen. And if you, and it's not overnight success, believe me. I mean, Zach had been running for years, 100 mile, 110, 115 mile weeks, all sorts of races, good races and bad, but never had that breakout race until Boston on that one given day. And it's amazing to see that happen. It really, really is. And that's what makes my job as being a, an agent. That's why I love it. I, I love my athletes. I think that they're, they're fabulous, not only athletes, but people. And because I have a small stable of really talented athletes that I really enjoy working with, it makes it special for me. I really love what I do. It's great. No, I love that. I, um, you know, it's funny. You, you, you said, you know, that when you become a professional, you are only as good as your last race. And, and I find that interesting because I spend so much time as a, as a youth coach trying to shift kids away from that mindset, right? Because that mindset can be so destructive because then they go, well, my last race was a six minute mile, um, but I ran 540 last time. And what we have to remember here is that this goes back to the value that you are providing and the, the current status of where you are. And so, you know, any of my younger athletes that might be listening here, I think the biggest point to understand is that there is not someone at the end of the finish line there handing out scholarships or handing out, you know, of your local 
you know, your, your local quad meet or, or, you know, your local track meet, there's no one handing out a sponsorship or looking at those and saying, we're going to sponsor that kid. I mean, there's so rarely you see a handful of kids that might come out of high school and go into the professionals. Um, and, you know, I, I know kind of we, we've had, this has been an, an absolutely amazing conversation. And I, I did want to touch on one or two more points before we kind of shift um, to kind of close things out. I'm actually super curious about when contracts can be broken, you know, this, and again, we don't have to get into the super political, you know, the deep depths here, but we see athletes that are injured. Is that something that you, you write into a clause that if they're injured, um, that, you know, the, that they will be retained for that for six months, you know, or is it that, Hey, if that athlete shows up to the race injured per se, um, how do we do that? Cause I look back, um, and I am absolutely forgetting her name right now. Um, there was an athlete that showed up to, um, a race recently. I think it was New York marathon. She announced the night before, um, Jordan Hesse, excuse me, had showed up, um, just before, I think it was either, uh, New York or Boston and announced that she wasn't going to be racing the next day because, you know, she'd been, you know, struggling with Achilles issues that hadn't been made public. You know, that athlete might've had an appearance fee, but now they're not racing. Are they not going to make that money? Or if they show up, do they run three miles and, hey, I did the best I could? Like, where does that fall? Yeah, that's a good question, Andrew. Let me, I, I'd like to put a pin on our, our discussion that we were having before about one race and, and you know, define you. I, what I tell my athletes all the time, and, and they have good races and bad races, I, you know, never let one race define you. Never, never let one race, no matter how good or how bad, define your career. It's really a body of work over time. And I think that's how you're going to be remembered as an athlete. Um, what does your body of work look like? I mean, if you look at some of the great athletes, it's been more than just one good race or a bad race. Um, so, yeah, never let one race define who you are as an athlete or define your career. It's a body of work. But getting back to the Jordan Hesse and the Achilles and things like that, you know, it's, there are, you, you try to take care of as many contingencies as you can when you negotiate a contract, whether it's with a, a sponsor or whether it's with a race, because the big races like the Boston Marathon, New York, Chicago, London, Tokyo, Berlin, they'll, they'll send you contracts for your athletes to sign. And they're five or six, seven, eight, sometimes 10 page single space contracts as to how they're going to pay you, when they're going to pay you, what you're going to do to get paid. So as far as an appearance fee is concerned, usually if I, the contracts that I've negotiated are for an appearance fee, you'll get X amount of dollars. Okay. And mm -hmm. if you don't finish the race, but you start the race, you will only get 50% of the appearance fee. Okay. So if the appearance fee is like, I'll just take a number, say it's $10,000 and you show up at the race, you start, you don't finish, you'll only get five. If you start and you finish, no matter how bad your time may be, you still get the entire 10. If you appear and don't even take and tow the starting line, you may not get any of your appearance fee. And, but a lot of that goes into negotiation as well. Um, because you, you have certain athletes, 
who will race every few weeks, for example. And if they know they're having a bad race and they've already secured their appearance fee, why kill themselves if, they're no, if they know they're going to have a bad finish and not finish in the top 10? So they'll drop out at mile five of a, of, a, of a 10K to save it for the next race that they're going to do 30 days from now, knowing that they've already secured their appearance fee. Wow. And of course, of course, you know, races don't like that. So they, it's got to the point where they say, no, you want your appearance fee. We'll pay you the whole thing, but you have to finish the race. And, and that doesn't, and, and if you even get hurt during the race, they're still not going to pay you the entire appearance fee if it was reduced because you did not finish. I, wow. I've, I've never had knock on wood. I, my athletes, if they can't get to the starting line, usually will withdraw well before the race starts if they're injured. Um, I mean, days or weeks, because the way I look at it is this. If my athlete cannot make it to a race because they're injured, it opens up a space for another athlete who might be able to get an invitation that they wouldn't have gotten but for the fact that that space opened. And I don't think it's fair to a race to not give them back that chit that they gave your athlete to run that race. Um, I, I don't like, yeah, I, it's, it's hard because athletes are hurt all the time. And I, I felt really badly to negotiate these deals for my athletes and then they'd get hurt and they couldn't run. And then you'd have to call the race director or the lead athlete coordinator. And I said, I, I'm sorry, he can't make it because he pulled this muscle and, and most of them get it. I mean, it's a really tough sport. You're pushing yourself to, as a pro athlete to the limit every single day and and it's better you want to make sure you get to the start line as fit as you possibly can and you're going to race as hard as you possibly can i think you owe that to the sport but sometimes you get hurt and um yeah i don't like having to withdraw my athletes from races if i can help it but most if you uh yeah, if you communicate with race directors and elite athlete coordinators, they understand the sport and they really respect the fact that you let them know what's going on and you don't say like an hour before the race, oh, by the way, he can't put on the singlet today because he's hurt. You know, it's, I, I think it's, my, my credibility means everything to me and my agency. And I want to make sure that my athletes are prepared every time they go to the starting line. And I want to make sure that they're going to give it their best effort because I think the sport and the race that they're in demand that. Absolutely. And so speaking of demands, I think uh, one of the things that I think would be, be interesting to touch on here is, you know, we've seen athletes like Alethine Tulliamuk or uh, Alyssa Montano, um, you know, we're starting to see, you know, athletes that maybe even are preparing for, in, in Alephine's case, you know, the, the Olympics. Um, and, you know, she's, she's pregnant. And, you know, there was a huge fallout with Alyssa Montano um, that I think really brought some of these things to light that, you know, for a long time, you know, in Nike's contracts, it was not something that was, you know, disclosed completely that, hey, if, if you become pregnant while on contract, that might be terms to to actually break our contract with you, um, you know, because there's there's nine, twelve, sixteen months as you become, you know, you're, you're you're having time to be a mother and then becoming an athlete again. 
where you're not able to fulfill these these parts of our contract. So do you see that that's become for your female athlete, that's become a very important part of the contract? And, you know, was that, was that as big of a deal as it was made, made out to be? Yes. It's a huge deal. Yeah. I think that the, the most important thing to remember is that because of people like, like, like Alephine, I I think that women are really starting to, 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 find their voice. And I think that, that, uh, that people are starting to listen and sponsors are starting to listen as well. Um, you know, Alephine, you know, and Lisa Montoya, I mean, they, they are not only tremendous athletes, but they're great people as well. And they have tremendous following and, and women is a really important part of our sport. I, I think if you look at race finishes, um, if you look at road running races and things like that, there are more women out there running races than men. So it's it's a really important area in which all sponsors have to be really attuned to and aware. And unless they can work with some of these athletes, which so who are really the spokesmen, not only for themselves individually or the club that they run for, but also for women in general, I think it's going to go far in helping them grow out their 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 sponsorship, and I think it's going to lead to um, better things. I, I I think that yeah, if 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 I was wearing if some woman was wearing a certain shoe or something like that, and you found out that there's and you really like the athlete and their shoe sponsor weren't going to cut them some slack because they were hurt or they were pregnant or they, they couldn't race for a certain period of time. I mean, and they're giving the athlete that I love a hard time that I follow. And am I going to go out and want to buy those shoes? Or the answer to that is no, you have to cater to the, to the demand of the people that you're trying to serve. And I don't think enough sponsors get that. I mean, athletes are human beings. They're not chattel. And I think that the more that that sponsors can work with the humanness of athletes and who they are as people, female or male, black or white, the more they'll be able to grow out their, not only the sport, but grow out their brand. And I think the bottom line is their business is trying to sell based on their brand. And that's what they have to do. And that's what they're finally getting around to doing, doing it. And I, I admire these women who are strong enough and believe in themselves enough to be, to, to have their voices heard and make demands. Uh, people like Kara Goucher and, you know, they, they're not afraid to be who they are and to live their truth and to be honest about what it is to be a professional athlete and to be a woman uh, and to uh, to, yeah, to live your life in an admirable, incredible way. It's tremendously absolutely. important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think in speaking to that, you know, this all goes back to as an athlete, you know, whether you have a high level of exposure or low level exposure, you know, you're, you know, maybe just, just becoming a, a professional runner or you've been in the game for a really long time, you have to know your value and the outlook on these things. You know, you've seen someone, you mentioned Kara Goucher. Well, she's now doing announcing, 
I'm sure that when she, you know, made that, that first Olympics, um, that she probably never saw herself, you know, being an announcer, you know, for athletes in the future, but she's had a, you know, a, someone just like yourself that has been great for her, um, in negotiating deals that are also going to help create a legacy for her. Right. She, she, she has built that, that, um, like you said, you know, that, that entire body of work, which I think is, is so important. And I think if we take this and kind of translate it to the, to the common person, um, you know, you have to remember that whether you're just an ambassador for a brand and you might be getting a, a discount code um, or, or something really simple, you still provide value. And, and, and that's what's so important about all of these things is that whether you're partnering with brands or you're working with another, another company, um, you have some leverage and some stake in this. Um, and that's where I think that, you know, in talking with you today, Chris, has been, I had so many, so many things I wanted to cover. Um, but I, I have really, really enjoyed this because what it has really come down to is that uh, it's, it's one thing that my wife and I talk a lot about, and we've talked in previous episodes, is this idea of knowing your value, know what you're worth, and don't be afraid to charge that. You have to live your truth as hard as that can be at times to feel like an imposter, right? And, and maybe that last race wasn't good. You're not an imposter. You're still a phenomenal runner. And you may be going through a valley before you start that climb again. Because we've seen it happen time and again where athletes have a breakout race. They may go through this huge valley of injury. And then they come back out and, you know, they are so thankful that the sponsor helped support them through that period. And we've also seen the exact opposite where they felt like they got, you know, left behind by a sponsor. And so I think when it comes down to it, you, your job has an immense amount of value and purpose and necessity. And to only have 58 of you, as you mentioned early on, um, we need more people. We need more people to help bring the sport up, uh, both as athletes, um, but also as in terms of representation. So, you know, Chris, I just wanted to take the time. I think we have absolutely a whole nother podcast worth of content we could talk about. Um, so I might, might even have to have you back on. Um, but what I would like to do as we kind of close things out here um, is where can people people find you, uh, whether online or Instagram or anything like that? Well, first of all, thanks, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. I'd love to come back on. Yeah, awesome. I believe in what you're doing with uh, lifelong endurance. And I, I think it's really important work. So keep at it. Um, Thank you. But the, the easiest way to follow me is uh, my agency's name is Elite Runner Management. Uh, we have a pretty substantial website where you can find out more about me and my background and my athletes as bios and what they do and what we've been able to accomplish. Um, and that's HTTPS backslash backslash Elite Runner Management dot com. Um, you can always each reach me on my email, which is elite runner management at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram at C Mengel, C M E N G E L one, two, three. Um, I have a Twitter account at, at Mengel C M E N G E L C. And I also have a Facebook account as well. Um, but probably the easiest way to find out about me and write me and, and get some background information about Elite Runner Management, my agent, my athletes, what we do, and whether or not you'd be interested in trying to join us would be on the website. 
Awesome. Chris, this has been a huge treat. I hope this opened up, uh, you know, those that are listening right now, I hope it opened up your eyes to what actually goes, uh, you know, goes on beyond, beyond the curtain of, you know, what scene, like you had mentioned, Chris, that, you know, contracts are negotiated kind of behind a curtain that people don't get to see. Um, but it's also why we've seen this huge leverage of social media. And we see people that, you know, they're doing sponsored content more and more and more. Um, so, you know, I, I, Chris, I'm really excited uh, that you joined today and look forward to having you on uh, again here in the near future. Yeah, you're welcome, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks.